those four things that shape our ministry and our, our, our hopes, our dreams, our vision, our everything as a church. And so we started that last week with the big idea, the single big idea. We want to be a gospel-centered church. That was our big idea. We'd be gospel-centered. We believe everything, absolutely everything must flow out of, must flow from the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done. We believe that the gospel is the sun we orbit. We believe it is the hub of the wheel that everything spins around and hinges on. We believe it is the foundation that everything must be built upon. We want to be a gospel-centered church. We don't want to be a good advice church, but a good news church. Who Jesus is and what he has done for us. So because of that, we need to keep on bringing ourselves back to the gospel. We want to keep what is of first importance, as Paul said last week, of first importance in this church. We believe that. We want to keep banging the drum of the gospel. Guys, Jesus Christ died for our sins. Let's not get sick of that. Let's not get over that. Let's not move on past that. Jesus died for our sins and he rose also for our justification. So for the next three Sundays, we are going to be looking at the these next three kind of topics, see how it, how it applies to our discipleship, what it means to be a gospel-centered disciple, how it applies to our community together, what it means to be a gospel-centered community, and finally to our mission, what it means to be on a gospel-centered mission as a church. And so that's where we're going the next few weeks. And so today we're talking about discipleship. And by that I mean our life with Jesus. The word discipleship is actually, first of all, doesn't appear in the Bible. Uh, that, that word doesn't appear in the Bible. The word disciple does. The noun disciple, might control disciple, and the verb make disciples. But the word discipleship doesn't appear in the Bible. Um, it's also an ambiguous word because you could be talking about two different things, right? You could be talking about like the activity of strengthening someone else in their faith on you know, discipleship time and strengthen you, or you could be talking about my own journey with the risen Jesus, my disciple, my following of Jesus. And to be clear, that's the sense in which we mean it. We're talking about my life with Jesus, your life with Jesus, what it means to follow him. And so that's what we're talking about when we say the word discipleship. Um, today, to get, I'm just going to give you all up front today. I have one point. So it takes some time. So I have one point. This is the one point. One big idea. A gospel-centered disciple is someone whose life is defined by the grace they've received from their Savior. Gospel-centered disciple is someone whose life is defined by the grace they've received from the Savior, Jesus Christ. Today we're going to be in John 21. And so again, if you have your Bibles, you can jump there. I'm going to start from verse 4. We're going to skip over a little bit and focus in on the back end. But it starts like this. It says, they, that is the, a handful of disciples, they went out and got into a boat. But that night they caught nothing. Any fishermen in the room? Does that sound familiar? There's always that one person who's like a bad luck charm with fishing. That's me. That's why I don't fish. I never caught a fish. That's not right, right? Maybe that's you and you just take dinner and not go out with your friends anymore. They don't want you there. Right? They went all night and they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus 
stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? Okay, first tip off. One grown man calls another group of grown men children. That's the first tip off, right? This is, this is not an, an ordinary stranger on the beach. Children, they answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And so they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Second tip off. <laughs> Second tip off. Jesus has done this trick before. When he met Peter for the first time, two on the other side of the boat, and then he said, you have to be fishes of men, right? He's done this trick before. That disciple whom Jesus loved, John, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came into the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. So Peter's doing a hundred yard, hundred uh, meter freestyle, leaving his mates. When they got on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. When they had breakfast, Jesus said to Simon, Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my love. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he'd said to him a third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Lord, we, we pray as we come to your word today. We're going to you. The risen Jesus, alive, right now, deciding to speak for Lord, we don't want to play games with you this morning. We don't want to learn Bible stories. We want to encounter you through your word, by your Holy Spirit. So we pray today, Lord, that we would have our ears open for your voice. Give us ears to hear. Amen. We're talking about discipleship. It's the first thing we need to ask ourselves is what does it mean to even be a disciple? What does it mean to be a disciple? Because that's the most basic, I think. Disciple, being a disciple is just to be a follower of being. Right? We might also use the language of apprentice. We're apprenticing after being. We're following him. We're learning from him. Um, 2,000 years ago, when Jesus was walking around, he walked up to a couple of people, a handful of people in the flesh, and said to them, follow me. We have a couple of those, but two examples here, Matthew 4, 19. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. That was after he did the trick the first time, right? Matthew 9, 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in a tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. That's in Matthew's Gospel. 
that's that type of book. Jesus said it, follow me. The two words serve Let's just all take a moment to put ourselves into the shoes of these people. There's 12 of them. Those people who heard this physical call to follow Jesus. These guys were normal people, right? They each had, like you and I, jobs, families, friends, soccer practice, social calendar, doctor's appointments, whatever else, you know, they'd be taking that thing on Netflix if they wanted to work, right? They, they had stuff, they had lives. They weren't just waiting for him to come and say, follow me, and then follow him, right? They had to drop everything. When Jesus called them, their lives got upended by him in a glorious way. Jesus is the great disruptor of our comfortable status quo. And to follow him means embracing that fact. We have to, if we want to follow Jesus, embrace the fact that Jesus is going to disrupt our lives in ways that are inconvenient, absolutely, and sometimes straight up like counter to what we want to do. Right? He's saying, follow me, and I'm like, well, that'll get that way. That's not just inconvenient, that's a clash of wills, right? And to be a follower of Jesus, to say the obvious thing, we need to be okay with following him. Wherever he calls us to go. And so we must, again, put ourselves in the shoes of those people, hear that call of Jesus to follow me, and embrace what that means for us. We're gonna have to follow Jesus. You can like those people back there, they could hardly claim to be followers of Jesus if they didn't actually go and follow him then. The good intentions don't make you a follower. But the following, right? And so let me just ask the obvious question as we start to think about what does it mean to follow Jesus, what does it mean to be a disciple? Let me ask the, the obvious question, are you pres- presently following him? Is that what you're actually doing with your life? Allowing your life to be disrupted, inconvenient, so that you can follow the call of Jesus. And again, don't be too quick to jump to an answer here. I'm following Jesus. Is that what we actually do? Today, we will together, we are together, receiving the call of Jesus once more to follow. And we too must embrace that decision. Count the cost. Take it that cost as much And follow him. Follow him with our life and embrace that inconvenience. And so some of us today maybe haven't made that decision, so yes, I'm actually going to be a follower of Jesus. Let today be the day. The only thing, the only thing more costly than following Jesus is not following Jesus. So hear the call today and follow him. Today we're going to be looking at the story of Peter. We're going to zero in on one of the very first disciples. There is so much that we can all learn from watching the way Jesus and Peter interact. The way Jesus deals with Peter. We can learn so much about what it means to be a, a disciple. Uh, this encounter that we've just read from John 21, it takes place after Jesus rose from the dead. So this is a post-resurrection appearance for the disciples. That's why they're freaked out by it a bit. It's his third appearance. It's not the first time. It's the third appearance. It's up in the north, uh, away from Jerusalem, um, a little while after Jesus was crucified. Within days, but not and Jesus, he performs this amazing miracle, right? Like the one he's already done. He's, he's uh, done the miraculous catch of fish 
after these guys had had no success all week. He says, try the other side. And immediately, right, they're like, you've done it before. Let's just see what happens, right? And they do it. They all remember, this is, it's Jesus on the beat. They didn't recognize him, but now they know it's Jesus. He's, he's the stranger on the beat. On the beach. And Peter is so ecstatic, he loses his mind a little bit and jumps in the water because he just needs to get back to Jesus ASAP. He leaves his buddies in the in the boat, trying to like get all the fish into the boat. He just like, that's not important. Who cares about fish right now, right? I know we haven't caught anything online, but who cares about fish? That's Jesus on the beach. And so he leaves his buddies, and they get to the they get to the beach. Jesus has already got fish. I don't know where he come from. He's already got some bread. He's got the fire going. Sit down for breakfast. And Jesus turns to Peter. He looks him in his eyes. Peter. He says, Simon, interested in Simon. Look here. Simon, son of John. Do you love me more than you? And you can imagine Peter's heart skipping a beat right in this moment. Do I? Lord, yes. You know that I love you. You know that. Second time, son, son of John, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, son and son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said it a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. So here's the resurrected Jesus, looking Peter in the eye, asking him to affirm his love for him three times. Once for each denial in him. Just a few days prior to this, Jesus and Peter were having a very different discussion. We read about it in John 13. This is what we see in John 13. Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Where are you going? This is the night before Jesus went to the cross. Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me. But you will follow after me. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I follow you now? Why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus knowing that he's going to be skewered onto a cross the next day, drops this bombshell to Peter. He says, Peter, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, that rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Before dawn, buddy, three times, you're going to abandon me. Notice, Peter thinks he's ready to go. He thinks he's got the goods. He is all in. Lord, I will lay down my life for you. He wants to follow Jesus to the very end. He's full of that confidence. He's, he knows that he, can, he, he thinks he can go the, go the distance. But Jesus, he knows the truth. He knows the hard truth. He knows what Peter doesn't know. He knows Peter is going to fall hard. Hard. He has no idea. Jesus knows the truth. We see this in Luke. Uh, in Luke um, has the, has the same account in different ways. Luke 22. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you so that he might sift you like wheat. That is a very interesting thing to 
Satan demanded to have you that he may sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with, go with you to prison and to death. I'm ready. Let's go. Jesus said to him, Peter, I tell you, the rooster will crow this day. Peter thinks he's ready. He is all in. To jail, to death, whatever it is, Jesus, I am so in. Let's go. Where are you going that I can't follow you? I'll follow you anywhere. Let's do it. Jesus knows Peter better than Peter knows Peter. You guys, Peter says he knows everything. Jesus knows Peter's not ready. Jesus knows that Peter is too self-confident. He is too proud. He is too brash. He is too confident in his own strength. And more than anything, Jesus knows that Peter has not yet discovered what is actually inside of him. Peter has no idea who he is or what he's capable of. And so Jesus looks at him and says, Peter, you will lay down your life on me. Before morning, buddy. Before morning, this is going to get bad. By the end of that night, Peter would come face to face with the reality of who he really is. How weak he is. We are like this And yet, in those like, devastating, spine chilling words that Jesus dropped on Peter that night, Despite that, we also see a wonderful hope in these words from Jesus. Did you see it? Jesus is not just foretelling his failure, but also his future. You see that in there? Jesus doesn't just speak of his failure, but his future. Peter, you can't follow me now. You can't do it. Afterwards, afterwards you will. Jesus would have been crucified too. Peter, I know you will fall. But afterwards, once you have turned, you strengthen your brothers. Afterwards, strengthen your brothers. See, Jesus knows that Peter is not another Judas, right? They're not the same thing. Jesus knows that, right? Jesus knows that Peter, his betrayal is entirely different. Peter would turn. Jesus knew that. Peter would receive grace. Jesus knew that. Peter would, um, although his, his love and his courage failed, he would turn. And he would receive grace and be a different man who was not lost. Jesus knew that after this, afterwards, Peter could follow. Not before. Peter was too full of himself. Too full of himself. But Peter, after this, Jesus knew Peter would be not together. He would be a man who had had his whole life transformed by the love of God. That hadn't happened yet. He would be a man who would love Jesus as he should. He would be a man who would spend his life strengthening his other weak brothers just as he would be. Jesus knew all of this. Say another way, say another way. Jesus knew that Peter would one day be on the other side of this failure. He'd be a gospel sinner, man. He'd be a gospel sinner. Jesus also knew that he's going to come through a profound breaking of Peter's self-confidence. 
Peter would have to be utterly broken. He would need to lose all hope of himself. He would need to despair of himself for him to realize that he needed the Lord's grace. I think this is particularly true for men, but it's absolutely true for every single person. There's nothing quite like knowing that when everything is on the line, when everything mattered at, at most, you're a coward, you're abandoned as you are. And that shame on his most feet for, for Peter. He's not going to get past that point. Let me just read to you the betrayal that we see in Luke. Luke 22. This is the final betrayal. After about an hour, another insisted, certainly this man was also with him. He too was a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was speaking, the rooster crowed. So that's the providence of God's timing. And then this line. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. I'll never forget discovering this verse for the first time when I was translating the Greek text into English, slowly, because I started Greek, right? Word by word, laboring over each word, thinking about what it means, I was translating it out. And I remember my stomach dropping out when I got this line. Jesus locked eyes with Peter across the courtyard. And the rooster crowed. And Peter melts into a pit of shame. We read what happens, right? Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him. He'd forgotten somehow. Before the rooster crows, it was 93 times, and he went out and he wept. He told him, not 50 years Peter didn't just lie, right? So he's telling a lie, but that's not why he felt shame, right? It wasn't that he violated a moral boundary, thou shalt not lie, that caused him the shame. This was deeply, deeply personal. He had betrayed his friend Peter. And Jesus knew it. He saw it. He saw him do it. They locked eyes. Didn't say Jesus said anything at the time. Friends, it's just as true for you and your sin and me and my sin. Sin is not arbitrary, law breaking. It is personal violation of that father's will. It's personal. It's deeply personal. And in this moment, more than any other moment, Peter knew just how personal his sin was. He had betrayed his dearest friend. I wonder if you experienced something of this sense of personal betrayal in your sin. You're ashamed of that friend. Guys, Jesus, for Peter in this moment, Jesus would be nailed to the cross the next morning, which means Peter would never have an opportunity to have that conversation with Jesus about what happened before he was crucified. Maybe they had it on the cross. We don't have any record of that. But then, he had to go to sleep that night without his conscience. And the memory of the eyes of Jesus. So, if that's what had just happened, is it any wonder that when he realizes who it is on the beach, that he's in? He's in. He's in. Doing his best impression, getting to shore as quickly as he can. Is it end of every, any wonder? He can still remember the look of Jesus' eye, look in Jesus' eyes that night. He cares about fish. I can speak to Jesus right now. He makes it to shore. They have breakfast together. 
We don't know what they talk about. Talked about if they spoke at all. Maybe it was just dead silent while I always ready for you to say something to them. We don't know what, what it was. We can imagine the kind of the, the atmosphere, the mix of heaviness and electricity we're standing in the presence of the resurrected Jesus. Until eventually Jesus turns to Peter and asks him for a question. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that. Do you love me? Yes, Lord. Do you love me? Yes. He's grieved by that. You see what Jesus is doing. Three affirmations for his three denials. He's restoring it. Three affirmations for his three denials. Jesus wasn't, I don't think, looking for a commitment for his benefit. This was Peter. This is the moment, I think, that transforms Peter into the man we read about in Acts. This is the moment that transforms him into forever. He is much more humble than himself at this moment. How can he not be? Right? How can he not be? There's no more kind of claiming that if all else fails, I'll be with you to the death, Peter. He's seeing that that plan doesn't work. He's seeing just how weak he really is. He knows down to the bones, down to the core of his being, that he is a man in need of grace. He has felt that. He's experienced that. He's walked that road. He knows where it leads. Friends, I wonder if you've had that realization for yourself yet. Have you had this realization for yourself? Have you, have you seen what's inside yet? There's a lot of kind of spiritual advice out there, which is a bad kind of Look inside you and you'll find the truth. Inside you is not the place where I play. Inside you is darkness. Have you learned the lesson that you're not all together to be trusted? It's the primary impediment for you walking as a gospel-centered disciple of Jesus. It's your pride. It's your pride. It's your overconfident self-assurance. Like the, uh, it's your like your make-believe self-sufficiency. It's your stubborn self-reliance. We, we only back at that point like that Peter did. Have that Peter moment. You might have already had one. You might need lots before you get the message. Because we need to fail so badly and so catastrophically and so painfully and so undeniably that we actually wake up to realize who we are and how much we need. We need to fail so badly, so catastrophic, so undeniably that we wake up, we realize who we are, and we hurl ourselves at it. We throw ourselves onto his grave. I'm not saying you should go out and manufacture this. <laughs> That's definitely not insane, right? But until you come face to face, until you come face to face with what's actually inside you, I don't think you can experience the depth of your grace. Until then, I think the gospel is going to bounce off a hard heart. I think until then, the gospel is going to sound like a cute platitude and not the life-giving grace of God. I think. And so, yeah, friends, we need to have some kind of moment that Peter had. We need first come face to face with what's who we are and need for him, how much we desperately need him, then we need to come face to face with Jesus. 
face-to-face with ourselves, see what's there. Face-to-face with Jesus, where we experience what Peter experienced, right? The all-knowing, soul-piercing gaze of Jesus. And there is everything about you. The depths of how deep that thing goes. You can see it all. And you experience that soul-piercing gaze on your soul. And then receive his smile. Especially at those points when you harbor the moon, grief, and self loathing. See the smile. I think that's what transforms us. I think that's what it means to be God. It's an excitement. And it's just like Peter, all of your most profound failures were ahead of Jesus when you died. Jesus went to the cross knowing what Peter was about to do. Friends, he knew everything you were going to do before he did. It was all ahead of You see how different this is from a kind of moral code following kind of version of Christianity. Here the rules, let's all follow these rules, and that makes us Christian. This is not that. Jesus is not trying to make slightly nicer Pharisees. Story of a very famous evangelist, um, English uh, Anglican evangelist named George Whitfield, back in the 1700s, long time ago. Um, he was one of the founders of Methodism and a big part of what came to be known as the uh, First Great Awakening. It was just the Great Awakening at the time, not the second one, um, in, in North America. When he was a young man, he was at Oxford, University of Oxford, and he uh, joined a, hub, uh, a club, a mini club, which was literally called the Holy Club. A holy club, right? Uh, and that's where he met the Wesley brothers as well, uh, whose carols we always sing. Um, and he devoted himself there to rigorous fasting, spiritual self-disciplines, prayer, seeking God. It was to honor God with his life. He joined the holy club. That's the kind of person he was. Rigorously religious. Until one day he discovered the gospel. Deeply religious man. Discovering the joy of the gospel. This is what he came to say. And just listen how much this sounds like what Peter would have said as well. These could be Peter's words upon discovering the beauty of the gospel. This, this is um, George Whitfield. He says, God was pleased to remove the heavy load. He was pleased to enable me to lay hold of his dear son by a living faith. Oh, what joy filled my soul when the weight of sin fell off. And the abiding sense of the pardoning love of God broke over my disconsolate soul. My joys were like springtime flood. An abiding sense of pardoning love of God broke over my disconsolate soul. Thank you, Peter. Is that you seen that? Friends, this is what makes the gospel centered aside. Right? We hear his call to follow him. We're deeply humbled by, our, by who we actually are, by our failures. And then we, re- then we experience the personal restoration in the gospel at the very hands of Jesus. Personal restoration at the hands of Jesus. And then, one final point is because I begin to wrap up. We receive his upward call on our lives. We receive his upward call. Jesus does not just forgive Peter and restore Peter. He actually calls him to something as well. 
He doesn't just think in our story, he pulls you to something as well. Getting ahead of myself here in the end of the series, but that's okay. Feed my sheep. And then back in the room, when you turn, strengthen your brothers. Feed my sheep, strengthen your brothers. Feed my sheep, strengthen your brothers. Peter, yes, he was to be a shepherd in the early church, uh, a servant leader for Jesus, who enjoyed an apostle, one of the twelve. He had a very unique call upon his life. We are not all called to such a unique office as Peter. However, as Christians, we are all called to receive something of this, this calling. We all receive something of this calling. Every Christian is called to serve the sheep, protect them, even to feed them with the word, not just for part of it. Because you don't need a position of leadership in the church to care for someone who needs to strengthen someone who is weak. Just feed them with the word, open up the Bible and give them grace. Don't need to be a part of that. Don't need to be a small bit This is a calling for the Christians. Next week we're going to be talking about that whole bunch. We're looking at community. We're going to be looking at gospel community. We're going to be looking at this life. How it is our calling and our privilege, your calling and your privilege, to take someone else by the hand, to bring them to Jesus, and then to put his hand in their, their hand in his hand. Feeding sheep, strengthening the brothers. And so today we are launching small groups. We've been talking about it for a long time. Here they are finally. Some of the sheets at the back of the room. That's exactly what they're those for. Exactly what they are for. It's a place where we can serve, bless, and strengthen one another. So if you're here and you're like thinking right now you're going to opt out of that, that's the only thing here to call you the upward call in your life. Strengthen your brothers. Love his body, love his Because, you see what he did to Peter? He drew a straight line from, Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Straight line. Do you love me? Or feed my sheep. That's, how, that, that's what loving Jesus means. That's what it looks like. That's what Jesus is calling him to. And so, friends, our small groups, yes, they are for you to grow. But they are not only for you to grow, they're also a place where you can go and strengthen the sheep. Strengthen your brothers and feed the sheep. And so, can I ask you that question? Do you love him? Do you love him? Feed the sheep. Before I finish, I do want to, we've already commissioned the small group leaders, but I do want to speak to them directly today because they are leaders and the church and recognize that they have to be very specific role in the church, in this, in the place. And so let me just address this more bit specifically. Today, you have been set aside specifically for the role of this. Strengthening your brothers, feeding your sheep. Jesus says to Peter, let your love for me overflow into that ministry. Let your love for me overflow into feeding the sheep with the word of God. And let me now take that moment, take this moment to pass the same commission on to you. You love me. Yes, you do. Feed the sheep. You have a sacred privilege to do that. Jesus ends this conversation in verse 19 with two words. Very similar to the first two words Peter heard from him. And so, friends, for those who say, Lord, you know I love you, Peter, these words from Jesus follow you. That's right.
ask for the painful but necessary realization of who we really are actually. For those of us who are defined by our stubbornness, our self-confidence, or would you show us what's inside of us? Lord, that the gospel doesn't leave us there. In the pit of despair, Lord, very quickly, and take us by the hand and lead us out of that place into those green pastures with you. Where we know, where we can finally receive who you are. We finally know what it means to follow you. We finally know what it means to receive your grace. And so, Lord, for everyone here who is yet to come to that place, still so sure of themselves, would you lead them there quickly? as painless as it is possible. Show us again the beauty of what it means that you died for us. The wonder of the gospel that calls us sons and daughters despite us, despite our faith. Would we see ourselves in Peter? Would we come to see that your words became our words for us? Lord, we pray for those who are right now, I pray for those right now, who are in that pit of despair right now, who feel fed up with themselves. They've seen what's there, they don't like it. They want to change. Lord, for those people right now, we bring your comfort from them. Would they experience life here, personal restoration that comes to Lord, for those of us who are following you, whether stumbling along or full of zeal, Lord, give us courage to follow you, especially when it's hard. Give us courage to follow you when we need to say no to self and yes to you. Send a church, I pray. We need as people who know what it means to be in Christ and to extend the Christ to others. We live out as calling as a church. And these things we need.